Bible 31. In their original form, 1st and 2nd Samuel were one book, so it's a bit artificial to call this chapter the end of 1st Samuel. The story just keeps on going right into 2nd Samuel, which is where we'll head next week. That being said, there is a sense of conclusion to our text. 1 Samuel 31 closes the book, so to speak, on King Saul. Israel's history will keep going, but the nation will do so without their first and flawed king, King Saul. So, you can follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel... And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day, Together, And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons, from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to give us grace as we listen to His word. Let's pray. Father, we do pray, as Jonathan just prayed a moment ago for us, that we would receive Your word with reverence, and with awe, and with faith, and with obedience. The Bible tells us the truth of who You are, God. Sometimes those truths are hard. All the time, those truths are for our good. And so we pray that You would give us grace to hear with ears of faith today. And we pray, God, that You would encourage us. Pray that You would keep me from error. Pray that You would grant Your people discernment. We pray that You would save the lost pray that you would edify the body of Christ and that you would do all of this for the glory and fame of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So ends the life and reign of Saul, the first king of Israel. 
Saul's life is often described as a tragedy, and in many ways, that is an accurate assessment. Saul's reign began with promise. You may not remember it by now, but Saul's reign began with promise. Remember how he threw off the Ammonites and he rallied the people of God to renew the kingdom? It began with such promise. But Saul's reign was soon undone. Not by external enemies, not by internal subversion, but by Saul's own failures. You see, for all of its sadness, chapter 31 is a fitting finale to Saul's life. A self-destructive king dies by a self-inflicted wound. It's a fitting finale. Saul dies as he lived. Undone by himself. So there's a sense in which we're right to call Saul's life a tragedy. Begins with promise, undone by himself. There's a sense in which we're right to call it a tragedy. And yet we must not stop with that assessment. Chapter 31 is tragic. It is dark. It is bleak. It is full of loss. But... If we've learned anything in the course of 1 Samuel, it's that outward appearances never tell the whole story. It's been this way from the beginning of the book, hasn't it? Hannah, who was barren in chapter 1, it's through Hannah, the barren woman, that God brings new life and leadership for Israel. It wasn't as it appeared. David, who was the smallest and easy to overlook, don't even go get him from the field. He's not even worthy to be counted. David, the smallest, is the one God raises up to shepherd His people. Things are not always as they appear. Do you see the theme there? In 1 Samuel, outward appearances never tell the entire story. And the same is true here in Saul's death. There is a divine perspective at work in chapter 31 that makes this more than a tragedy. It is tragic. But it's more than a tragedy. Woven into the bleakness of the battle are these little hints, these subtle arrows that point us beyond Saul to God's Word and to God's purpose and ultimately to God's kingdom. So it's a tragedy, yes, to be sure. But it's a tragedy that teaches if you have the eyes of faith to see it and the ears of faith to hear it. And that's where we turn our attention now to that divine perspective on Saul's tragic end. As we just noted, there are three truths in particular we need to see from the finale of Saul's life. The first concerns God's Word. And it comes in verses 1-6. to The king is fallen, but God's Word stands firm. The king is fallen, but God's Word stands firm. As the chapter begins, you might be thinking to yourself, well, it's about time we got to this battle. If you remember, the account of this battle began back in chapter 28. Chapter 28, verse 1, the Philistines gathered to fight Israel. So it began back in chapter 28, but then the author has taken us on all these detours that keep leaving us hanging. We had to follow Saul to visit the witch at Endor. Then we witnessed David escape his dilemma with the Philistines. And then we went with David to rescue his people from the Amalekites. For three whole chapters, we've been waiting on this battle. And for all that anticipation, it's over in a flash. Three chapters to get here, and it's finished in a sentence. Notice verse 1. 
Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. There you have it. The whole battle, much anticipated, done in a sentence. Actually, it's not even much of a fight. For all the buildup, this is a rout. It's a blowout. It's a catastrophe. That only touches the surface, though. Starting in verse 2, the passage zeroes in, goes from the nation as a whole down to Saul in particular, and we get a blow-by-blow account of Saul's final minutes. And what a sad account it is. Saul loses everything here at the end. He loses everything. Notice how grim it is. First off, Saul loses his sons. Look at verse 2, where Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua are struck down by the Philistines. Of course, it's difficult to hear that all three have died, but it's Jonathan's death that gets our attention. Why does Jonathan have to die? If it doesn't bother you, it should. Why does Jonathan have to die? Throughout the book, Jonathan has been nothing but faithful. He's been loyal. He's been courageous. Remember, it was Jonathan who led the army to victory in chapter 14. It was Jonathan who protected David in chapter 19, warned David in chapter 20, and then encouraged David in chapter 23. You see, Jonathan has been loyal. He's been faithful. He's been nothing but faithful. And yet he dies. Here, next to his self-destructive father. Why? Why? Well, perhaps it's that very same faithfulness that answers our question. Where else would you expect to find such a faithful and courageous man like Jonathan? If we know him at all, then we should know that there is no other place that he would be but here. Yes, it's sad that Jonathan dies, but let's not miss the final exhortation of his life. It's the exhortation to faithfulness. No matter the cost, Jonathan served where the Lord had placed him. Not everyone, friends, gets to do great things for God. Some people endure great costs for God. No matter the cost, Jonathan served where the Lord had placed him. Does that make his death easy? No. But it does make it commendable. I I can't help but think... When I think of Jonathan's death, I can't help but think of that stirring quote from the missionary martyr Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jonathan couldn't have the kingdom, so he gave it up in order to get a greater kingdom. Jonathan lost his life, but he did so with his eyes firmly fixed on the kingdom that was to come. And in doing so, Jonathan joined that great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12. And his testimony now exhorts us to run with the same sort of faithfulness, regardless of the cost. So it's sad that he dies, but don't miss his last exhortation to you, friend. His exhortation is, serve where the Lord has you, regardless of the cost, because faithfulness is what matters to the Lord God. Jonathan's example aside, it gets worse for Saul. He loses his sons, and then in verse 4, he loses his life. Saul can see that death is inevitable. He's badly wounded, which means he he can't flee. He can't get away. And if the Philistines were to capture him alive, well, I can't even say out loud what they would do to him. I mean, it would be unthinkable if they capture him alive. 
Faced then with the inevitable, Saul asks for his armor bearer to kill him. But notice how the armor bearer responds. Look at the middle of verse 4. But Saul's armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Friends, do you see the contrast at work here? The lowly servant has more honor than his master. The armor bearer teaches the king about fearing the Lord. The armor bearer fears the Lord, which is why he won't dare to hurt Saul. Remember, for all of his flaws, Saul is still the Lord's anointed king. So the armor bearer has no right to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. He fears the Lord. But whom does Saul fear? Not God. Only the Philistines. You see, it's the little final closing contrast here. The servant more honorable than the master. The armor bearer teaching the king what it means to fear the Lord. And so in Saul's mind, he has only one option left. Notice the end of verse 4. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Saul, the self-destructive king, takes his own life with a self-inflicted wound. Now, we might have a lot of questions about what Saul has done. This is actually not a text on suicide. So we might have a lot of questions about what Saul has done. But what should get our attention here is what Saul has not done. He has not cried out to the Lord. Friends, that's a shocking omission. Even the most hardened sinner will often utter a desperate prayer when faced with the reality of death. But Saul can't even bring himself to do that. This is a man who has lived without reference to God. And so he knows only one way to die. And that's without reference to God. And surprisingly, it's in Saul's death that we find the divine perspective on these events. Think back to chapter 28 when Saul went to visit the medium at Endor and he spoke with the departed, the spirit of the departed prophet Samuel. Think back to that moment. Do you remember what Samuel said to Saul? Chapter 28, verse 19. Samuel said, The Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Now fast forward back to chapter 31. What has God done? Well, quite simply, He has kept His word. He's kept His word. The Lord has done to Saul precisely what He said He would do. Do you see it, friends? The king is fallen, but God's word stands firm. The great tragedy of Saul's life is that he spent his days opposing what cannot change and what will not move. The Word of God. And it's at this point that Saul's death speaks very clearly to our lives today. You see, Saul's death is both a warning and a promise. The warning is this. You cannot outrun the judgment of God's Word. You cannot outrun the judgment of God's Word. Scripture is crystal clear, friends. There is a day coming when every person who has ever lived will stand before God and give an account for his or her life. As sure as the sun rises tomorrow, that day is coming. And for those who don't know Christ, that day will end as Saul's life ended. In the judgment of God. So if you don't 
if you're not a Christian today, if you don't know the Lord Jesus by faith, then I would plead with you to listen to the warning of Saul's death. Do not think you can outrun what God has said. God's Word stands firm, friend. So humble yourself today before the living God. Do what Saul would not do. Cry out to God. Confess your sin against the Lord. Confess that you, like Saul, have rebelled against God's Word and have sought to live without reference to God. Confess your sin. And then trust in the Savior God has provided, the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture speaks very clearly on the reality of God's judgment. But the Scriptures also speak very clearly on the reality of good news. That Jesus, the Son of God, died to bear the judgment we deserve. That's actually the heart of the Bible. Not that God is going to judge the wicked, but that God will save those who look to His Son. You do not have to face the day of judgment on your own. If you are not a Christian today, it is by no chance that you're here. And God wants you to hear this Word. You cannot outrun the judgment of God's Word. There is salvation in Christ, but that salvation comes only to those who repent and believe in His name. So listen to Saul's death and do what he would not do. Cry out to God in faith. On the other side of that warning, there is a promise. If God's Word stands firm in judgment, then it will also stand firm in salvation. If it stands firm in judgment, then it stands firm in salvation. And that's the promise. Do you see how the warning and the promise are two sides of the same coin? And that coin is the faithfulness of God. Whether judgment or salvation, God's Word stands firm because the God who speaks that Word is faithful. For those who reject His Word, you can expect to find tragedy, just as Saul did. Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe not next year. But one day. But for those who embrace God's Word by faith, you can expect to find salvation, for God is faithful. The king is fallen, but God's Word stands firm. And therefore, friends, the call of this passage is to build your life upon what God has said. The king is fallen, but God's Word stands firm. As we continue on in the passage, we find in verses 7-10 to a second divine perspective, this time focused on God's purpose. The battle is lost, but God's purpose advances. The battle is lost, but God's purpose advances. With the king dead, things go as you might expect them to. The battle is utterly lost. The Philistines have free reign and they make full use of it. In fact, beginning in verse 7, the text describes what on the surface could only be called Philistine supremacy. Follow along with me and see how it works out. First of all, the Philistines claim supremacy over Israel's land. Verse 7, Saul's army flees, and that allows the Philistines to take possession of new territory. Territory that once belonged to Israel. But understand, friends, this is more than territorial expansion. This is like a reversal of the conquest. Think back to Israel's history, and remember how Joshua led the Israelites to drive the Canaanites out of the land and to take possession of what God had given them. You remember that? The conquest of the land? 
Well, here in 1 Samuel 31, it's all coming undone. It's the pagans driving out the Israelites. It's the Philistines living in the good land. The Philistines claim supremacy over Israel's land. They also claim supremacy over Israel's people. Notice verses 8 and 9. The Philistines begin to swarm like a horde over the battlefield to collect their spoil. And as they do, they find the body of Saul. And just like before, there's another reversal. This time, it's a reversal of David's victory over Goliath. What did David do to Goliath, the tallest of the Philistines? He cut off his head and he took his armor. What do the Philistines do to Saul, the tallest of the Israelites? They cut off his head and they take his armor. You see, it's all coming undone. It's all coming undone. To us, this all sounds probably pretty morbid. But in the ancient Near East, this is standard practice. You see, a king represented his people. If you kill the king, you rule the people. That's how the thinking went. That's why in verse 10, they put Saul's body on the wall of Beth Shan. Beth Shan was a fortress at the crossroads of a well-traveled route, both north and south and east and west. So when they put Saul's corpse up there on the wall, it would have been like a billboard reminding every Israelite that walked by, your king is dead, and that means we now own you. The Philistines claim supremacy over Israel's people. But worst of all, the Philistines claim supremacy over Israel's God. Notice where they t- the Philistines take their trophies in verses 9 and 10. They take them to the temple of their gods. You don't need to know anything about the ancient Near East to get this point. The Philistine message is pretty plain. Our gods are greater than your God. That's what they're saying. If your God were the true God, then why didn't He protect you? Why didn't He deliver your King? You see, this is the gospel of Philistine supremacy. We have your land and we rule your people because we killed your God. We shouldn't underestimate how dismal all of this is for Israel. You've got to understand that these verses are about more than losing a battle. At the heart of Israel's identity was this idea that as they dwelled in the land, their lives would shine out with God's glory so that all the nations would come in and walk in the light of the Lord. But that idea is completely shattered here. It's undone. The king is dead. The people are scattered. The land is overrun. All of the good things are coming undone, it seems. Where is the glory of God in such a devastating, humiliating defeat? Where is it? Then comes the divine perspective. Though it can only be seen with the eyes of faith. The author of 1 Samuel actually points us towards the divine perspective in verse 9. It's only a small thing, but like so much of what we've seen in 1 Samuel, it's the quiet work of God that should get your attention. So notice how the author describes the Philistine deities in verse 9. It's, it's so quick you might miss it. He does not call them gods. He calls them idols. Lifeless statues made with human hands that have no power to even pick themselves up, let alone win a fight. He doesn't call them gods. He calls them idols. Now, if you've been reading through 1 Samuel, if you just sat down and started in chapter 1 and read through to the end, what would you think of at this point when you read of Philistine idols? You would think of Dagon and the Ark of the Covenant from chapter 5. 
Remember? You remember the scene? The Philistines defeated Israel in battle and they took the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in the temple of Dagon. And then the next morning they woke up and Dagon was lying face down in front of the Ark. And so they quickly put their impotent little statue back up, right? And then the next morning they woke up and what had happened that time? He had fallen down again, except this time his head and his hands were cut off. Again, now it's the Lord sending a clear message to the Philistines. You may have won a measly little battle, and you may have captured this box covered in gold, but you can't touch me. The only reason you won is because I allowed it to happen. That same divine perspective from chapter 5 is at work here in chapter 31, but you've got to look with the eyes of faith to see it. The Philistines are not supreme, not in the least. God is supreme. And the Philistines are a tool tool in His sovereign hand. Don't miss that connection, friends. It's the only way to make sense out of these verses. God decreed judgment against Saul, and then in His sovereignty, God used the Philistines as His rod to administer that judgment. Nothing is derailing here. This is God's doing. Do you see it? The Philistines serve the Lord's purpose. That's not all. It actually goes a bit further. By dispatching Saul, what else have the Philistines done? Well, they've prepared the way for David to sit on Israel's throne. In a sense, they've signed their own death warrant. Because when you read 2 Samuel, what does David do over and over and over again? He whoops the Philistines. So by killing Saul, they've prepared the way for David. This moment of apparent Philistine supremacy becomes part of God's plan to establish the Davidic kingdom. It makes you think about another king, doesn't it? Who died in order to establish his kingdom? It makes you think about another king whose life appeared to be derailing, except it was in the derailing that God's purpose was coming to pass. Friends, this is how God works. He takes defeat and He uses it to bring about His victory. His kingdom is upside down from the world's kingdom. In God's kingdom, the last are first, and the weakest are strongest, and the losers win. That's what He's doing here. It doesn't make the lost battle any easier to stomach, but it does make it purposeful. Friends, you can endure a lot of hardship if you know it's purposeful. Perhaps the worst thing would be to say that there is no purpose. The battle is lost, but God's purpose is advancing. You know, our lives are vastly different from that of ancient Israel. But there is an encouragement here for us, and it's one that is increasingly important for us to remember. If you think about it, you could describe our culture right now in 2018 as one of Philistine supremacy. I mean, all around us, God's truth is denied. All around us, the gospel is ridiculed. And each day, it seems that we see darkness triumph in yet another area. I mean, to put it very bluntly, in the battle for the culture, Christian truth appears to be on the retreat. It would be easy then, in days like ours, to succumb to hand-wringing or fear. Many people are. It would be easy to conclude that silence is the safest option for us as Christians. It would be easy for us to do what they do in verse 7. Let's just run away. 
But those conclusions would miss the divine perspective we've seen here in 1 Samuel 31 and what we've seen all throughout the Bible. God's purpose is always advancing. And I don't mean that tritely. God's purpose is always advancing. Even in defeat, God is at work. Now, He may be purifying His church. He may be bringing hardship and judgment in order to purify His church. But even as He does that, He's preparing His people and He's working out His purposes. You see, Isaiah 42.8 is as true on dark days as it is on triumphant ones. I am the Lord, God says. That is My name. And I will not give My glory to another. That's true every day. Our God is never defeated, brothers and sisters. His purpose is always advancing. And therefore, we can live with courage. That's the takeaway of this divine perspective on Israel's lost battle. At least that's how I take it. We can live with courage. We do not have to flee and we do not have to fear. Indeed, we must not flee or fear, but instead we must courageously live out the truth of God's supremacy even when there appears to be no evidence of it. Courageously live out the truth of God's supremacy. And you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, okay, well what does that look like? That sounds like it's really hard, like I need to go to seminary or something. Well, I have good news for you. You don't have to do any of that. To live out the truth of God's supremacy looks like this. It means you raise your family in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. It means you love your neighbor as yourself, even and especially those neighbors who are not like you. It means you devote your life to building up the church of Christ, which is the pillar and the buttress of truth. You, you plant your life in a church and you stay there as it grows and as you grow with it. You strive to live lives of holiness that are distinct from the culture so that people look at your life and say, you don't seem to care about all the things that I care about. Why? And you stand unwavering on the truth of Christ's empty tomb. That's what it looks like to live out the supremacy of God. Raise your families. Love your neighbors. Build up the church. Pursue godliness. In other words, be a Christian. That's how we must live. With courage that displays the glory of our great God. There will be battles lost. If you ask my opinion, I think the battle in America is lost. You can disagree with me. There will be battles lost, just as there was here in 1 Samuel 31. But even then, and this is the key, even then, God remains sovereign. His purpose is advancing. And therefore, we can and must face this world with courage. With courage, raise your families, love your neighbors, build up the church, pursue godliness, and tell people that there was a man who was God and man and he's dead and he wasn't, he's not dead anymore. Okay, well that's like three paragraphs that weren't in my notes, so we have to keep going now. The battle is lost, but God's purpose is advancing. Final paragraph gives us the last divine perspective on Saul's tragedy. This time it's focused on God's kingdom. The nation is leaderless, but God's kingdom gives hope. The nation is leaderless, but God's kingdom gives hope. For all the tragedy... 1 Samuel 31 actually ends with a display of virtue. Notice what happens in verses 
11-13, the men of Jabesh-Gilead hear of the desecration of Saul's body and despite all the danger involved, they decide that they're going to do something about it. Oh, for more men like the men of Jabesh-Gilead who say, it's hard, but I'm going to do something. They set out on a daring midnight raid. Now understand, Jabesh-Gilead is on the eastern side of the Jordan. Beth-Shan is on the western side of the Jordan. So they've got to travel through the night, cross a river, sneak into a Philistine fortress, get four bodies back, and then hightail it back across the river before the Philistine garrison figures out what's going on. You couldn't make a movie better than that. So this is no easy mission, but the men are courageous. I want to meet these men. That's right. Let's do it. They're valiant, so they go. And incredibly, their raid is successful. They're able to retrieve the bodies, and upon returning to Jabesh, they bury Saul and his sons underneath a tamarisk tree. So as tragic as the passage is, Saul's story ends not with a note of shame, but on a note of honor. Don't miss the kindness of God. Saul doesn't deserve any sort of honor. I mean, what he deserves is to be left there rotting in the sun on the walls of Beth Shan. But that's not where God leaves him. It's the kindness of God towards his enemies. Now, of course, the key question is, why would these men do this? That's what I ask. Why would they do this? Why would they risk life and limb simply to bury the body of a flawed king? I mean, think about it. The nation is in shambles. There's no leadership. Why would they undertake such a daring mission? Well, there are two reasons. The first is gratitude. Gratitude. These men owe Saul a debt of gratitude. If you remember back to chapter 11, Saul's first act as king was to rescue the people of Jabesh-Gilead. Do you remember when Nahash the Ammonite came and said, you're going to serve me? And I'm going to gouge out your eyes, your right eye, and you can be my slaves forever. It was actually the high point of Saul's reign. The Ammonites were oppressing them. So what did Saul do? He rode through the night, crossed the Jordan, and delivered the people from the shame of slavery. Now here at the end of Saul's life, the men of Jabesh do the same in return. They ride through the night, cross the Jordan, and rescue Saul from further shame. Their raid is a display of gratitude to a fallen king. The second reason, however, is just as significant, and it's, it's here that we see that divine perspective. The men of Jabesh retrieve Saul's body because they are hopeful. They're hopeful. The nation is in shambles, but the men of Jabesh are hopeful that God's kingdom will endure forever. They are hopeful that God will raise up another king who will do for the nation what Saul did for Jabesh. Deliver them from their enemies. Friend, in in the midst of a catastrophe, if you do what is normal and expected, it means you're hopeful. Right? That's what the men of Jabesh do here. Everything is falling down all around them and they say, we need to bury these men properly because we think there's another day coming. A better day. A better kingdom. You see, there's there's no other reason to explain their mission except for hope. The hope that the kingdom of God cannot be shaken. The hope that the shambles will not last forever. My favorite hymn is Martin Luther's Reformation anthem, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And those stirring lines in the final verse are my favorite part of the hymn. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. Every time 
Every time we sing those lines, it seems the Lord renews my desire to not waste my life. To make it count for the glory of God. I I love those lines. But if you think about it, those lines are kind of extreme. Let goods and kindred go? Kindred is your family, by the way. Let goods and family go? I mean, if the world were to hear us singing that, they would probably conclude that we're mentally ill. That there's something wrong with us. I mean, honestly, there are a lot of professing Christians who would think the same thing. They would think those lines are extreme. Sure, we're supposed to follow Jesus, but letting goods and family go, laying down our lives, isn't that a bit crazy? I don't want to be a crazy Christian. And you know what? On their own, those lines are crazy. They're radical on their own. It's only the end of the hymn that explains the call to let goods and kindred go. You remember how it ends, right? Maybe you're singing it in your head right now. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Here it is. His kingdom is forever. You see, that's the reason, brothers and sisters, we let goods and kindred go because God's kingdom is forever. It's the hope of the kingdom of God that enables us to lay aside everything for the sake of the glory of God. So if you will forgive me for the historical inaccuracy, I like to imagine the men of Jabesh in the middle of the night loading up their donkeys and their camels with supplies and then looking at each other in the eye and say, let goods and kindred go. God's kingdom is forever. And then they go. What I'm trying to stress here is that it's only the hope of the kingdom of God that's able to sustain us in the shambles of this fallen world. How do you raise children in a godless culture like the one we live in? How do you do that? Only with the hope that there's a greater kingdom to come. That's the only way. You can't raise them on the hope of nostalgia that someday we might go back to the good old days. There's no going back. You raise them with the hope of the kingdom of God. If we focus on the world around us, then we'll flee like the Israelites in verse 7. We'll see no reason to go on, and we'll have no hope to outlast the darkness. But if, like the men of Jabesh, we focus on God's kingdom, then we'll find ourselves strengthened for the work God has given us to do. So, I have just one question for you. Which kingdom has your attention? The kingdom of this world that's passing away? Or the kingdom of God that endures forever? Which kingdom has your attention? The nation is leaderless, but God's kingdom gives hope. So may we fix our eyes on that kingdom. So ends the life and reign of Saul, the first king of Israel. His life is tragic, he dies as he lived without reference to God. And yet, in the midst of that tragedy, there is this divine perspective on Saul's death that tells the rest of the story. The kingdom has fallen, but God's word stands firm. The battle is lost, but God's purpose advances. The nation is leaderless, but God's kingdom gives hope. Within the book of verse Samuel, it's striking to notice that the events of chapter 31 happen simultaneously with the events of chapter 30. While Saul dies in chapter 31 under the judgment of God's Word, 
David is victorious in chapter 30 on the strength of God's Word. One king has fallen, while another king, a king after God's own heart, is being raised up. You see it? And thus, the book of 1 Samuel ends hopefully. Hopefully. That God is not finished with His people. He will not leave them as sheep without a shepherd. He will give them a better king. And it's from this king that salvation will come. So may we see life with God's perspective, brothers and sisters, and may our hearts be strengthened to know that God's provision has come to us in David's greater Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray.